This is Africa Digest. Seventeen hundred hours Central African time. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective, broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa. You can find us on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Magesi and I'm in studio with Onelin Sinsi and Tracy Boomgaard. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. The East African Trade Network strongly opposes the proposed free trade agreement. Former U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton says he wouldn't be voting for President Trump this November. And Zambian youth are warned by the president that they will be crushed should they go ahead with the planned protests today. Right now, though, let's cross on over to the news desk where Onlensitz is standing by to give us your latest news bulletin. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samara. 27 people are reported to have been abducted by religious fundamentalists in Mozambique. Al-Shabaab has been carrying out attacks in the region since 2017. The BBC's Mary Hapa reports. Most of those taken were women and girls. They're used as cooks and porters by the militants. Bodies of six of the male hostages were found in a village. Hundreds of people have been killed since the insurgency began, most of them beheaded. The group is growing in strength. It's recently seized towns, raising its black flag. Northern Mozambique is rich in natural gas. There are fears that the insurgency could disrupt efforts by international companies to exploit the resource, pushing the country further into poverty. The Zimbabwe government says it expects COVID-19 cases to rise rapidly in the few weeks due to an increase in the number of tests being conducted. To date, the country has recorded 489 cases, with the majority of these being from returnees. Of concern to the government has been the rise in local cases, which have seen a sharp increase in the last week. Six people have since succumbed to the virus, with the latest two cases being of two elderly women who were reported to have underlying health conditions. Chief Coordination in the Office of the President and Cabinet Dr. Agnes Maovwa alluded this increase in, to increased testing, rather increase in the rate of infections. A former Tanzanian Foreign Minister is set to challenge President John Magufuli for the ruling party's nomination for presidential candidates ahead of a keenly awaited polls. Bennett member has asked the Central Committee of the governing Chama Mapinduzi CCM party to allow him to challenge the incumbent of the party's candidature. The CCM party has governed the country for more than four decades since independence. His announcement comes after the ruling party in February announced he had been expelled. A move member has rejected, saying the party's National Executive Committee is yet to communicate that to him. 
South Africa's health minister, William Kize, has warned that the infection rate of COVID-19 is going to skyrocket if people don't change their behavior to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. He again appealed to people to continue practicing COVID-19 safety measures, which include social distancing, washing of hands and wearing of masks. The minister's comments come as South Africa has nearly 2,000 deaths after another 553 fatalities in the past 24 hours, bringing the national death toll to 1,930. The infection rate is near the 100,000 mark with 97,302 confirmed cases. Kize says if people don't adhere to preventative measures, the number of COVID-19 cases are going to see a sharp increase. We're talking about uh, you know the 97,000 today, but uh, in a few weeks we'll be talking about several hundreds of thousands. And that actually is because of this behavior. This is what you are seeing now. Wait for two weeks. You will see the impact of how the recklessness that we would have actually seen now, how it will actually translate in the numbers of more new infections that are going to be coming. The real risk is when those numbers are so huge that even our hospitals can't cope. We've managed it so well up to now, we need to really maintain the balance as we move into the next few weeks. Lastly, Afghan government officials have described last week as the deadliest in nearly two decades for the security forces. They say the surge in violence suggests the Taliban are not serious about a peace process. The BBC's Jill McGivering reports. In the past, the Afghan government hasn't made these casualty figures public, but the spokesman for the National Security Council, Javid Faisal, said 291 members of the security forces had been killed in the past week and accused the Taliban of carrying out more than 420 attacks. He said this suggested the Taliban's commitment to reducing violence was meaningless and that violence must end for there to be peace talks. A spokesman for the Taliban described the comments as propaganda to disrupt the peace process. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelinsinsi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. The East African Trade Network uh, has strongly opposed the proposed free trade agreement between the United States and Kenyan governments. The network comprising of civil society organizations, trade unions and farmer groups has six members, Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, South Sudan, Burundi and Rwanda. According to the network, the United States and Kenyan government's decision to be party to a trade pact with the United States at this time is extremely wrong. James Shimanula reports. Presenting reasons for opposing the proposed United States-Kenya trade pact, spokesman for the East African Trade Network, EATN, Edgar Odari said. We, members of the East African Trade Network, drawn from Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi, South Sudan, and Tanzania, are opposed to the free trade agreement between the United States and Kenya because for our agricultural stakeholders, it is likely to bring cheap subsidized products into the region and this will edge out the small-scale farmers who are working hard to produce their produce and it will affect food security for the region because we'll not be able to have farmers compete in the market. We think it will expose Kenya to serious trade and investment disputes. Odari said the proposed free trade agreement, FTA, will seriously undermine African integration and jeopardize the success of the continental free trade agreement of which Kenya 
Kenya is party too. He flashed back to the year that the North African nation of Egypt was locked in a trade dispute with a Spanish company. In 2018, Egypt was told to pay $2 billion by the International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes because of a dispute with a Spanish company. These are the kind of risks that we do not want to expose Kenya, which has a small economy and cannot be able to pay that kind of money to be used towards paying a private company. This is why we are opposed to this deal. We oppose it because of regulatory chill. This basically means that countries, because of the risk of being sued by companies, refuse to regulate human rights and environmental issues because they fear they'll be sued at the International Center for Settlement of Investment Disputes. These are the reasons why we are opposed to the free trade agreement between the United States and Kenya. Faith Demonia is program coordinator for the non-governmental organization known as the Southern and Eastern Africa Trade Information and Negotiations Institute, CATINI. The institute is part of East African Trade Network. Lumonia explains why the organization is concerned by the proposed United States-Kenya Trade Pact. Kenya is part of the ESC common market. We are concerned that if Kenya decides to pursue this particular trade arrangement, it could jeopardize the progress that has been made in consolidating the ESC as a single customs union and, and common market, but also that it could have far-reaching implications on some of the most marginalized individuals in society, for example, the small-scale farmers. A lot of the U.S exports are heavily subsidized by their governments and so it is for this reason that most of the products that we get from the United States often reach the African market much cheaper than even the products that we have internally as African states. Posing a rhetorical question on the United States-Kenya trade pact, Lemonia had this to say. How will Kenya ensure that it does not give more market offers to the United States than to the ESC. We all know that um, when it comes to capacity in terms of production, in terms of meeting quality standards, the US has a higher capacity. And so the possibility of loss of market opportunity by all the ESC partner states in the Kenya market is high. Countries like Uganda, like Rwanda, trade a lot with Kenya in terms of imports, but also in terms of exports. And in terms of imports, the fear is that a lot of cheap products from the U.S. will eventually get into these other partner states and thereby affect production capacity. That was Faith Lemonia Program Coordinator for a non-governmental organization known as Southern and Eastern Africa Trade Information and Negotiations Institute, Siatini. In conclusion, the following points expounded by Odari and Lemonia should be borne in mind. Kenya has been an exporter to the United States under the African Growth and Opportunity Act, AGOA, which expires in 2025 and has a possibility of renewal by the U.S. Congress, which has the sole mandate to do that. This, therefore, Dari and Lumonia say, beats the purpose of a freshly negotiated free trade agreement again with the United States. Dari and Lumonia contend that Kenya has not fully utilized the preferential scheme under AGOA, and it beats logic how it will gain under the proposal.
proposed free trade area. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Some opposition parties in South Africa's parliament have expressed hope that Finance Minister Tito Mboweni's emergency budget this week will address uh, employment, health, spending and growing the economy. This is Mboweni scheduled to deliver a supplementary budget on Wednesday, uh, setting out how government is adjusting its spending in the light of the COVID-19 pandemic. Zaylin Merrington reports. Even before the lockdown brought on by the global COVID-19 pandemic, the South African economy was in troubled waters. The lockdown has made economic conditions much worse. Opposition parties in Parliament say they want to hear how government plans to bring relief and growth. DAMP Jordan Hill-Lewis says the lockdown has placed individuals, businesses and government in vulnerable positions. As a result, South Africa urgently needs a plan to restore resilience. We need a resilience budget. In this dire context, a resilience budget must acknowledge that neither austerity the sharp uh, reduction in basic uh, in spending on basic services nor a big expansion in spending is possible now i'm afraid both of those options are off the table and as south africa's economic position becomes more and more serious uh, the options available to us become more and more limited the only available option is a very careful deployment of debt to fund the crisis response while still ensuring economic reform that can spur growth and, very importantly, showing a clear path to debt stability. The IFP MP Nkosi Mzamu Butalezi says they want the Finance Minister to announce measures to cut non-service items. So I expect the minister to actually deliver a budget of a balancing act between our, between our economic recovery and also job creation. We expect him to put some drastic cuts on non-service items like SAA. We don't expect SA to be getting any bailout. We expect the minister to deliver a budget that will speak more to our healthcare and also make sure that there is a particular focus to agriculture in terms of food security and also job creation. ICDP Chief Whoop Steve Swart says he wants to hear more about government 500 billion rand relief package. Where the funds will come from and more importantly how they will be spent. They must bolster public health and stimulate economic growth. They must protect lives and livelihoods during this crisis. The funds must also be protected from theft and corruption. This means real-time auditing of expenditure and swift action by the Hawks and the National Prosecuting Authority where there is any allegation of fraud and corruption. We need good stewardship of these funds, most of which will need to be borrowed and must be repaid. Freedom Front Plus leader Peter Schoenewald says Mboweni has tough decisions to make. The minister has no choice but to start a budget from a zero basis. He will also have to prove to South Africa that he is stronger than the unions and he will have to cut the salaries of civil servants and therefore save money. We also say that those state-owned entities like SAA, SA Express, even Denel, they cannot afford to receive any further financing from government and government will have to get rid of them. 
The FF says they hope the minister will announce some social relief measures. The party's Delisile in Guenya. We hope the minister will make provisions for basic income grant to be increased to 500 rand and to be made permanent. That there is provision for the taxi industry relief for each taxi to get 20,000 rand. And that the minister also makes provision for social grants to be continued until the economy has recovered. Uh, Most importantly though, we want to see decisive intervention in state-owned companies to ensure that we avoid liquidation and that workers are paid. And that report was by Zaylin Merrington. They have been warned by the president of Zambia that they will be crushed should they go ahead with the planned protests today. But the determined Zambian youths have vowed to go ahead with the planned protests, putting up demands that the government respect human rights and freedom of expression and offer employment for the young people, among others. Arthur Davis Sikobo now gives us an insight on this matter from Lusaka. They have been warned by the president of Zambia that they will be crushed should they go ahead with the planned protest on 22nd June 2020. But they seem not to fear being crushed by the mercenaries of the president. These are young Zambians who feel human rights are being abused, rule of law not being respected, the constitution being set aside, right of expression trumped on by those in power, access to proper health being at risk, among others. Muleta Kapatiso a human rights defender and lawyer, is among the youths that today have put their lives at risk from the state, its machinery, and the party in power, the Patriotic Front, as he and his colleagues have decided to go ahead with the planned protest. He says the protest is being done in accordance with the law and other provisions enshrined in human rights, especially that they notify the police as demanded by the law. But we don't want wrongdoing to go unquestioned. We want to question wrongdoing without intimidation from those that we elect and put into power. That's what the protest is about. It's about upholding human dignity in this country. Republican President Edgar Lungu, a few weeks ago, instructed security wings to crush the protesters should they go ahead with the protest. And Home Affairs Minister... Stephen Campiongo, on Sunday, put it on record that the youths should not go ahead or risk being dealt with as he directed the top cop, the Inspector General of Police, to handle the issue. Those who dare the states pull up themselves today. So, Inspector General, you know what you need to do and you know what you do best. Activate your troops and make them ready to deal with any non-law-abiding citizen who wants to take law unto their own hands. Mr. Capadiso, his colleagues, that includes influential and controversial artist Pilato Chamafumba, have refused to live second lives in a place that they call home, where they've been born, they live, and they hope to die from. So we are not children, and that's why we're not afraid, because this is our country, and we stand strong. The protest is tagged at 2 p.m. local time, at a yet-to-be-revealed location in Lusaka. And by morning, police and other security wings were around the capital trying to locate the determined young protesters. 
John Sangwa, a renowned constitutional lawyer, says every person has a right to express themselves, provided that they don't break the law, and the young people have the right to demonstrate and make their demands known without any hindrance. For people to come together to advance a particular cause, nobody again can stop people from doing that. Okay, of course you do it within the law. It is a right. Nobody can stop this. And what you're seeing is basically government dabbling in lawlessness. State Council John Sangwa, who quotes Article 21 and Article 20 of the Zambian Constitution, further wonders what law the minister and those in government have been using to stop the young people from protesting. You are stopping them. Where are you deriving the power or the authority to stop them? When reached for a comment... Home Affairs Minister Stephen Campiongo was unreachable, but his aide, Nefas Chifuta, claimed that the young people were sponsored by the opposition and also were being stopped with concerns of COVID-19. Those that are, you know, influence political parties, we cannot allow this in the midst of the COVID-19. This is one huge test to the tolerance of freedoms and liberties and respect for the rule of law by the state, as many have described the above as deteriorating, especially for a country that premised itself on Christian values and declared a democracy. Arthur Devsiskopo reporting for Channel Africa in Lusaka, Zambia. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NetLab to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Former U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton has eviscerated President Donald Trump in his first major interview ahead of the release of his much-anticipated book about his time in the White House. In an unrestrained break with his former boss, Bolton said he wouldn't be voting for President Trump this November, adding that he hoped he would be a one-term president. The room where it happened is due out tomorrow after a federal judge rejected an administration request to block its release. Show and Bryce Peace reports. While Bolton is being criticized from the left for refusing to cooperate with their impeachment investigations into the president, or from the right for breaking ranks with Republicans less than five months from election day, he describes a president who is erratic, behaved irrationally, saw conspiracies behind a rock, and was stunningly uninformed. Here, in an exclusive interview with ABC's Martha Raddatz. I don't think he's fit for office. I, I don't think he has the competence to carry out the job. There really isn't any guiding principle uh, that I was able to discern other than 
what's good for Donald Trump's reelection. You say that you were astonished by what you saw. A president for whom getting reelected was the only thing that mattered, even if it meant endangering or weakening the nation? Well, I think he was so focused on the reelection uh, that uh, longer term considerations uh, fell by the wayside. So if he thought he could get a photo opportunity with Kim Jong-un at the demilitarized zone in Korea, there was considerable emphasis on the photo opportunity and the press reaction to it, uh, and little or no focus on what such meetings did for the bargaining position of the United States. In allowing the book's publication to proceed, a federal judge did warn that Bolton could be in jeopardy of forfeiting his $2 million advance and could face further litigation for publishing a book before receiving a final clearance from the White House over classified information that might be contained therein something Bolton's lawyers have rejected, while the top Democrat in Congress, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, also weighed in. President Trump, by dint of what we saw in the impeachment, uh, by what others are being quoted as saying in terms of uh, leaders uh, in the president's administ own administration, President Trump is clearly ethically unfit and intellectually unprepared to be the president of the United States. That doesn't seem to matter to the Republicans in the United States Senate. Uh, it didn't seem to matter to John Bolton. He chose royalty over, over patriotism. We begin our campaign, and I just want to thank all of you. President Trump, who this weekend rallied in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in front of an underwhelming crowd with rows of empty seats, tweeted that Bolton was a despicable man who was washed up until he was brought into the White House. A question put to his spokesperson, Kaylee McEnany. Why does the president keep hiring people who are dumb as a rock, overrated, way over their heads, wacko and incompetent? So the president makes hiring decisions based on the fact that he likes to have countervailing viewpoints. I spoke to him this morning about the hiring of John Bolton in particular, and he said, I like to counterbalance my own opinion with individuals that oftentimes have the very opposite opinion of my own. He likes the model of having a team of rivals, like what we saw um, in President Lincoln's administration. Um, I've been a part of that. I often see rigorous debate, and the president uses his gut and makes the best decision as to how to move forward. So that's what goes into his hiring practices, and I think the team of rivals with President Lincoln work quite well. The room where it happened already topping Amazon's bestseller list. I'm Sherwin Bryce-Pease in New York. Thousands of commuters in South Africa's economic province of Gauteng were left scrambling for transport as taxis halted their services. The shutdown by the Taxi Association Santaco is an attempt to send a strong message to government to agree to their demands of 20,000 rand per taxi as part of the COVID-19 relief funding. Government has offered the industry 5,000 rand per taxi, which amounts to 1.135 billion rand, but the industry says it's too little. Pumzile Mlangeni compiled this report. I started now now to work, so if I'm, uh, if I'm not going to work, nothing I can do. I don't have money. I can't waste too far. It's a problem. There's no way. 
These taxi commuters from Alexandra, north of Johannesburg, are some of the commuters that were affected by the strike. Many are afraid they could lose their jobs. Santaco remains optimistic that today's shutdown will put pressure on government to accede to their demands. Obas Kosana from Pretoria West has been in the taxi industry for over 20 years. His two taxis have been not generating sufficient income since the country went into lockdown. I cannot run the risk of saying to them doing up and down and coming back and park and uh, incurring high mileage and repairs because they are not doing any business because of the loading capacity. The strike was also felt by other transport businesses. Bus company Patco was stopped from operating this morning. In Soweto, passengers were made to disembark while on their way to work. In Pretoria, the 20 bus service was forced to suspend services after a bus with passengers was hijacked in Denville, west of the city. 20 spokesperson Silby Bukaba. The driver was hijacked with a bus full of passengers and that bus was used to blockade the road in the very same um, vicinity. We, we wish to apologize to our to our commuters for the inconvenience that we have caused them. This is a situation that is uh, beyond our control. The capital city was the most affected with major routes in Olivenhood, Bosch and Centurion blocked with burning tyres. In Soshanguwe, the police and the military used rubber bullets to disperse the taxi drivers who had blocked the transfer intersection with burning tyres, preventing motorists from entering and leaving the township. Santaco has condemned these actions. Spokesperson Midday Mali. I want to appeal to those who are blocking the roads. This shutdown is a peaceful shutdown. Let them open those roads. We even issued the instruction together here as a taxi industry here in Houghton that let our cars not wake up. We expect those vehicles to be at home to be where they're supposed to be parked. While the impact of the strike was felt by many commuters, the Mainland Taxi Association, in affiliation of the National Taxi Alliance, continued transporting commuters. Prince Kosana speaks for the Mainland Taxi Association. Well, it's not a different approach. A formal statement states clearly that the government and the NTA negotiations are happening. And while they are engaging robustly, there's no need for you to take action because the minister has confirmed what I'm saying yesterday around four by saying you are welcome to engage robustly. Transport Minister Philem Balula has stressed that government cannot afford to offer more money to the industry. I am Pumzilim Langeni in Pretoria. It's now time for your latest news headlines. Here's Ola Lentzinsi. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. 27 people are reported to have been abducted by religious fundamentalists in Mozambique. The World Health Organization has warned that the coronavirus pandemic is still accelerating and the Zimbabwe government says it expects COVID-19 cases to rise rapidly in the country. Channel Africa News, I am Onelin Sinzi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Moving on right now. The past two months of South Africa's national lockdown and measures implemented to counteract the spread of COVID-19 have brought about a new reality for society. Priorities have shifted 
and the importance of one's residential location in light of the global pandemic, particularly for those seeking retirement homes, has become paramount. An unexpected result of the pandemic and associated uh, economic recovery measures could well prove to be a boost to the local property market. KwaZulu-Natal's south coast is emerging as one of the safest options in terms of location and the most in-demand areas in terms of coastal living. Phil Barker of Renishaw Property Developments believes this is also great for those looking to invest in a retirement home. Yeah, it's a true it's, it's a little early to tell. Um, but the indications that we're getting, you know, we've been completely closed down, of course, like the rest of the country for the last two months. And we only opened up again at the beginning of June. And uh, the interest has been surprisingly good for people who are essentially still confined to their homes. So um, we do think that the the lockdown period has given a lot of people time for a lot of introspection and thought about what do they really want out of life, uh, where do do they want to live, et cetera, et cetera. So um, we we have had a surprisingly good um, interest in the last two weeks. Mm-hmm. And now, uh, obviously, with that introspection, among other things, would be where would I want to retire? Um, where would I want to live when I retire? And um, uh, you believe that the South Coast is uh, one of the best uh, places to come and live in, in in South Africa? We do think that the South Coast of KZN has a lot of advantages. Uh, compared to a lot of other areas in South Africa. I, I, clearly, the whole of the coast of KZN, because of the weather, is very attractive, especially at that time of year. We think it's freezing cold here when it's 13 degrees, uh, whereas Johannesburg and Cape Town and everything has suffer a lot more than that. So, so we have the weather, absolutely. Um, then as to the south coast compared to the north coast, why we think the south coast is good is that the south coast is still relatively undeveloped so at this stage if we're looking specifically at COVID, you're right away from any hot spots at the moment and we hope it stays like that um and and it it really is the south coast is still very much uh is in sort of holiday mode it's that type of thing. So it's much more laid back and very comfortable. Uh, there's still a lot of coastal forest around. Um, so people who retire and uh, need things to do, um, there, there, there's plenty of walks and nature trails and bird watching and all the rest of the stuff that keeps people busy um, once they finish their jobs. So definitely, we, we, we would recommend the South Coast, absolutely. And in terms of affordability, would you say it's still relatively affordable in comparison with other uh, places like Cape Town, like Johannesburg? Um, the South Coast is, is exceptionally affordable if we're going to compare with Cape Town and Johannesburg, yes. Um, our, our comparison really is with the north coast of KZN, um, which is a very, very popular retirement destination. And our prices at the moment sit at about 60 to 70% of the, of the pricing, if you look at a price per square meter of the North Coast. So from that point of view, you, you're looking at a slightly different market, and uh, we believe it's affordable. Uh, however, um, it, it still is a premium product. So we're not, we're not giving a less than premium product for the same price per square meter. Yeah, it's it's affordable.
Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of the um, advantages, some of the advantages of one um, wanting uh, moving there for their retirement, just give us one of the eight or three of the eight uh, reasons for a person to come and live there when they retire. Um, the South Coast specifically, um, because exactly what we were just talking about in terms of affordability. So you've got the value for money. We still, we've got award-winning construction. If we're looking specifically now at Rennishaw Hills, which is just one of our developments, it's the first of our developments. If we're looking specifically at Rennishaw Hills, um, then we've got the award-winning construction. We've won the award three years in a row for the best uh, constructed uh, buildings in a, in a certain category with the Master Builders Association. We've got high-end services, quality facilities, etc. And um, and 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 the pricing, as I say, at sixty to seventy percent of our competitors, the value for money is great. Uh, the, the the next thing that we think is a good idea as to why to look at the South Coast is we consider it an, a natural retreat. Uh, Renishaw Hills is within a large uh, conservation area, and we are, we are using that to our advantage in terms of the architectural design of the units being very much uh, natural views, natural lighting, with all the walking trails through the indigenous forest. Uh, it's very quiet. There's no traffic. So a natural retreat compared to an urban type area. Um, the, the third one, just to pick them, to pick them out of the eight, is um, we also offer, which is is not really usual in retirement villages, but it is changing this way. It's a worldwide trend. Is a big thing when you're choosing a retirement village is healthcare to make sure that there's care there for the people as they age within the village. And uh, we focus specifically on home-based care. Um, so we don't. We we have a small care centre. As to most of the most of the villages have a large care centre. We have a small care centre, but then we partner with a company that specialises in home-based care. So we have uh, medical personnel on site, but they supervise um, carers that go into the homes. So we 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 have found after much research that the generation that's retiring now, the baby boomer generation, rather than the previous silent generation, are much more vocal on what they want uh, in terms of lifestyle after they have retired. And one of them is they don't want to be confined to a hospital-type situation. So home-based care is a big one for us as well. And that was Phil Barker of Renishaw Property Developments, and he was on the line to Tutongobeni. The global outbreak of COVID-19 has taught us many things, but one of the biggest lessons learned is the importance of preparing and saving for the future. For some people, this means putting money away on a regular basis into an interest-paying savings account, while for others, it means investing in the financial markets. If you're new to the investing world, you might find all the choice quite daunting. To discuss this and some of the steps on how to start investing, we're joined on the line by Kondingosi, South Africa Country Head at Global Asset Manager Schroders. Kondi, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Samora. Now, what is the general attitude of many young people towards saving? Well, I, 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 think, it, I think it varies. What, what you find generally with young people, and 
I was young once myself, Samora, so I, I speak from experience, is that uh, you tend to think you've got a lot of time uh, ahead of you. So, you know, this saving and putting money away is probably something you can hold off. Um, however, I think what young people fail to necessarily realize is that that very thing, time, is probably your best friend when it comes to saving and, shall we say, building wealth. And why is it so important for the youth to start saving at an early age? Well, again, back to that point um, around around time. Um, you know, there's this concept of compounding that I'm sure uh, yourself and your listeners would have come across. Um, essentially, what it means is that, you know, if you put some money away and that money grows over time, if you leave it invested, you've got now a bigger base off of which your investments can grow. So compounding essentially is growth on the growth that you've already experienced. And that is an extremely powerful force. Um, if, if, you, if you allow me, I mean, I just ran some numbers. If, if you assume that you were, put a, if you were to put away 250 rand a month over a 10-year period or over a 20-year, and over a 20-year period, the amount of money you would have at the end of 10 years would be in the ballpark of about 64,000 rand, and that's money invested in shares. After 20 years, it's actually more than double that. The number would actually be closer to 312,000 rand, which shows you the power of this compounding interest effect, if you will. So it's really, really important to take full advantage of that as a young person. I think there are probably two other reasons that I would probably put forward. Um, the one is it provides a certain level of discipline. So as a young person, if you consistently put money aside and you're able to do that over some time, it builds this element of discipline in you, which can you know, uh, spread across to other parts of your life. The, the other one, and I think, you know, I've, I've got three kids, so I see this quite a lot, but it's this concept of delayed gratification. I think that the younger generation with, you know, things being instant and now and now and now, this concept of delayed gratification seems to have sort of taken away side a little bit. Um, putting money aside and getting into that habit and that discipline, I think, allows you also to benefit from this concept of delayed gratification, if you will. All right. Now, how challenging can investing be, especially for those doing it for the first time? Well, it, it, it can be quite daunting. I mean, there's lots of um, you know, product providers, lots of asset managers like ourselves out there who are offering products. Um, some some, some you know, people don't know where necessarily to start. How do you actually go about doing this? So it, it can be quite challenging. Um, but what, what we've tried to do in this article is to kind of try to break it down into sort of its simple steps that hopefully everyone would be able to follow in starting your savings journey. And uh, take us through some of the steps on how the youth of today can start saving and investing in the future and maybe any uh, platforms that one can look out for that might make it easier for us to you know, invest and save. Sure. So I think, you know, if youth, uh, as well as anyone else who's looking to start investing, these steps could equally apply to, to everyone. So the first and perhaps obvious one is to decide how much you can invest. Now, we're all in different positions um, financially. Some people could potentially have an inheritance or, 
you know, a pot of money that was set aside for them by their parents, and and some people there that, that just doesn't exist. So I think it's the first and uh, perhaps critical step that you you can take is to say, right, how much can I comfortably afford to put away? So that that would be the first step, and then the second step is to decide, well, firstly, how long you would like to have that money invested for. Um, and perhaps linked to that is how much risk you'd be comfortable in taking. Now, there's, there's an inextricable link between, between those two. The longer you can have your money put away, the more you can afford to take on a little bit more risk. So, for example, investing in shares, while you are exposing yourself to a little bit to, to more risk, you're also exposing yourself to the potential of generating more money in time. And there's a lot of research out there that shows that the longer you actually invested in, for example, shares, the lower the chances are of you actually losing money in time, regardless of what's happening in, in markets. Uh, step three would then be to decide how exactly you're going to invest. Now, if you happen to be working, there's a strong chance that you've got a company-sponsored pension fund of sorts where you're already putting money. So an easy step if you wanted to invest some more, is to potentially just increase the contribution rate to your company pension budget. If you don't have that available, then there's a number of other avenues that you can follow. I'm sure your, your listeners would have heard of the concept of a unit trust. Mm-hmm. This is essentially where you've got an asset manager, much similar to ourselves, that run a portfolio of investments on the behalf of the various investors. Um, within South Africa, you've also got this, uh, I'm going to call it an investment vehicle called a tax-free savings account, and it does exactly what the name suggests. Essentially, you're able to put your money away, and that money can grow without any taxes on the growth in the value of the assets, as well as any interest or dividends that come off of that. There are certain nuances around how much you can put into these things. Uh, you know, which any financial advisor can talk to your to, to your listeners about. Um, but yeah, you know, you've got that option, and it's a really really critical one for for young investors, particularly young investors, to take full advantage of. And then the last two is really just choosing what exactly the investment vehicle you're going to put this money in. So is it going to be a mixture of bonds and equities and cash, or is it going to be only equities or shares and those kind of things? And, you know, again, a conversation with a financial advisor would be able to, you know, pull those things out. And then I guess the last step, as, as, as is normal with these things, is you just need to constantly monitor your investments. How, how is the investment doing? How has your life, um, you know, situation changed? Would you need the money sooner than you thought? And so on. So it's really important just to keep an eye on how things are going. All right, Kondi, thank you very much for joining us. You're more than welcome tomorrow, and thanks very much for having me. And that was Kondingosi, South Africa country head at Global Asset Manager Schroders, joining us on the line. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective 
on the coronavirus. Coronavirus is a disease that causes respiratory illness like the flu with symptoms such as a cough, fever, and in more severe cases, difficulty breathing. You can protect yourself by washing your hands frequently, avoiding touching your face, and avoiding close contact one meter or three feet with people who are unwell. If you suspect to have contracted COVID-19, contact the relevant health authorities in your area. Keep listening to Channel Africa. The African Perspective will keep you updated on the latest on the coronavirus. And now it's time for your latest economics news. Here's Tracy Boomgard. Thank you. China has announced it will cancel the debt of some African countries in an attempt to cushion the impact of COVID-19 on China-Africa cooperation. Those countries that could see their debt cancelled would be the ones hardest hit by the coronavirus and are under heavy financial stress. Other efforts China is putting into place is extending the period of debt suspension to help them tide over the current difficulties. Chinese and African leaders have agreed to step up joint efforts to combat the disease and build a China-Africa community of health for all. Analysts are predicting a jobs bloodbath in the second quarter of the year as the impact of the COVID-19 lockdown on employment becomes more evident. Statistics South Africa is expected to release its quarterly labour survey numbers for the first quarter of this year. Unemployment is expected to increase to just over 30% in the first quarter of the year, from 29.1% in the last quarter of 2019. Founder of Economist.co.za, Mike Schusler, says the job losses in the first quarter are largely due to the impact of load shedding, while job losses in the second quarter can be attributed to the coronavirus and the lockdown. The unemployment rate is probably going to go closer to 30% from 29.1%. I would expect it to be, uh, say, at least 29.5%. And the broader unemployment rate will be closer to 39%. But we must remember this is just the beginning of the difficulties for South Africa's labor market because the lockdown was only enforced for four days in March and most of the survey would have been done before uh, we went into lockdown. South African professionals that have remained working from home as a result of the coronavirus pandemic say lengthy online meetings have left them feeling fatigued and frustrated. This as South Africa currently records more than 97,000 cases and more than 1,930 deaths due to the virus. While the country remains in lockdown level three, companies have been urged to promote the work-from-home model. A new debt recovery company has been launched in Accra, Ghana. The company, Ardeen Debt Recovery Company Limited, is a subsidiary of the Ardeen Group of Companies. It pledges to help companies redeem their debts from clients. The company's range of services will include debt collections, credit ratings, receivables management and execution of court judgments. 
A German financial technology company has admitted that more than $2 billion said to be missing from its accounts probably didn't exist. Wirecard, whose business includes processing credit card payments, has been hit by allegations of accounting irregularities, reported by the Financial Times last year. The BBC's Andrew Walker reports. The missing $2 billion was supposed to have been in accounts in the Philippines for use in managing Wirecard's Asian business. But the Central Bank of the Philippines says the money appears never to have entered the country's financial system. Last week, the firm's chief executive resigned and its auditor refused to approve last year's accounts. Now the company says the balances reported to be in the Philippines probably never existed. Wirecard is discussing its finances with its banks and is considering other steps to save the business, including selling off or closing down some operations. The U.S. dollars trading at 384.27 Nigeria Naira, 11.53 Botswana Pula, 105.31 Kenyan Shilling and at 18.15 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, 1 U.S. dollars trading at 5.31 Brazilian Hail, 69.39 Russian Ruble, 75.91 Indian Rupee, 7.07 Chinese Yuan and at 17.30 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 80 pence to the British pound and 89 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,747, platinum at $817 per ounce, and the price of Brent crude oil is $42.25 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. Be sure to join us again from 1900 hours Central African time for more news from an African perspective. But in the meantime, should you want to get in contact with us, be sure to send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za. Follow us on Twitter at channelafrica1 or Facebook. You'll find us on Channel Africa. Or you can WhatsApp us plus 27763003327. Taking us to the top of the hour is Viva by Zonke Tikana. We'll see you later.
smile and my mind would fly every day all my life watching you this is on the god Tando, Utando Lomtulo, viva! 